Okay, the scriptures from 1 John 2, 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for it had for they had been if they had been us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all that all were not of us <laughs> but you have been anointed by the holy one and you have knowledge i write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth who is the liar but he who denies that jesus is the christ this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know what that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been embarrassed? Have you ever been, have you ever done something that you just wish no one would have saw? that you just did what you did. Maybe, maybe it was a trip. Maybe it was a fumble of words. Maybe it was something that uh, you did that you know no one saw, but yet still it embarrassed you. Have you ever done that? That you were by yourself and you've done something, something that you know if anybody else ever knew that that thing happened, it would embarrass you? It would make you cringe just a little bit? One of my most embarrassing moments in... I'll be honest, I don't get embarrassed that easily. Uh, but one of my most embarrassing moments was one of the first sermons that I ever preached. And I was preaching on uh, a passage in James about being double-minded. And I was trying to think of an illustration that would be good to do and, and say to folks what double-minded was like. And I said to them, uh, as a way of illustration, that I could tell you that I'm a woman, but I could show you I'm a man. Now, I can laugh sort of about it now, but at the time, I was super grateful that most everybody by that point in the sermon had fallen asleep and didn't really know what I was saying, because it would have been truly embarrassing had anybody actually caught on to that. Maybe it's not embarrassment that you're worried about, but maybe there's something in your life that you've been caught out about. There was something that you've been doing in your life that if anybody else knew about it, it would be shameful. Or in fact, you were in the midst of it and someone saw you. Maybe it's a small thing, like you're practicing a really strict diet and someone sees you at 7-Eleven getting two Krispy Kreme donuts. 
Maybe perhaps it's even larger than that. And, and you think to yourself, there's no possible way for me to get back from this. How am I going to go from where I'm at now, this place of shame, and like get rid of it and move on from it? I want to read verse 28 to you again. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Too often when we come to this place of our relationship with God, we have this image that God is up there just waiting to catch us out. Longing to see when we screw up and how we screw up. Even some of us probably have a picture of God who is hoping for us to screw up. Because then he can show his mighty power and how big and holy he is. But what we see in this passage, this part of John's letter leading up to that verse about how when he appears we won't shrink from him in shame is the fact that God promises us that that's not how he seeks and looks at us. God says that that's not how he wants us to see him as the one who sits on a throne with his box ticking off when we do wrong. But instead, he sits on his throne longing for us to recognize his abiding love for us. And so we're kind of going to go through what that looks like for us so that when we hit that place of knowing that there is no longer shame, we can rejoice in it. When I looked at 1 John and started thinking about preaching through this book, this was one of those passages that you look at and you go, man, if I could just skip it, that would be great. Because there's some words that get used in this passage um, that bring about all sorts of things uh, that people hold in society, that people hold on to. And so there's a few that we sort of need to unpack a little bit before we get to the meat of what it means to live a shameless life. And the first one is this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me... Uh, Children, it is the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. And so sometimes, and I don't want to put anything into your head, but sometimes when people hear that idea of the last hour, they think of a big churchy word called the eschaton, which is this thing that's saying there is something that is coming, that, that we're currently in the last days or the last hours, that we're waiting for God to appear in some form or fashion. And, and what John is saying here is he's writing and, and he's saying, look, there's been something that has happened and it has caused us to be in a new era. And the thing that he's referring to that has happened is the fact that Christ has come that he's died, and that he's resurrected. 
And because Christ has come and he's died and he has resurrected, that has changed the way the world was operating before. And now we are in the new way that the world is operating. God is making all things new as they always were. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in his life, God flips everything back to the way it should be. And so we have before Christ dying and after Christ dying. And so one of the things that John is saying here is that the old has passed away and the new is coming. And so we are now in those last days. We're in the new thing. Now, the other thing that he is pointing to is that God is going to complete things. Sometimes when we think of last days, we we think of signs and wonders, or we think of prophecies like Revelation or Daniel, if you hang out in the Bible much. And, And you think of trying to figure out when is this day going to be, and when is Jesus going to come, and all that. Let me just say this real quickly. Jesus himself says, while he was on the earth, I don't know the time or day. So if Jesus can't figure it out, I'm pretty sure I can't. So if I'm trying to tell the time and place, uh, that's not the point. The point of it being the last days is to remind us that there is purpose in life. By saying the last days are here, it's saying this is going somewhere. That there is a time and a place where this will finish that there is some sort of culmination or completion that's going to happen. And that all of life, that all of creation is moving towards that. Now, for us who believe that, it should give us assurance. It should let us know that the world is not some nihilistic, arbitrary, cosmos, spinning out of control place. But that there is a point that we are going to. Now, I say a point that we're going to because we're fleshy and we have to think linear and we have to move in sort of that direction. I don't know if that's how it works. But what I do know is that when we say the last days are here, it's that we say we are moving towards God's intended completion. All right, so that's the first thing that we need to unpack just a little bit. So he says, the last hour. As you have heard... The Antichrist is coming. This is really the word I was like, oh man, I don't really necessarily want to deal with that. I don't know if you guys like TV shows. Apparently I do a lot. There's a new one that's just come out. It's based on a book by Neil Gaiman and and Terry Padgett that's called Good Omens. And it's about the apocalypse, the end of the world. And in it the person who is the Antichrist is the son of Satan. Now it's funny and it's a dark comedy and it's pretty cool how they kind of do things. But it's this little, I think he's 12-year-old boy who's going to be the Antichrist and bring about the end of the age. And he doesn't even realize it. That's the interesting thing about it. There was a whole series of books that were written about this that made tons of money and Kirk Cameron got to star in a great series of movies about it. We're fascinated by this idea of the Antichrist 
Who is this one individual, this Damien demon that's going to come about and wreak havoc among the world that we're all going to end up being called to either bow down and follow or not called down? What are you going to choose? This is great for church camp. You could really guilt people into doing some things. The good thing for us is that John explains who he's talking about. The interesting thing for us is John is the only one who uses this word ever in all of the Bible. So we should go to him and what he says about what the Antichrist is so we can understand what he's saying. So he says this, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. All right, so first off, it's not one person that he's talking about. There's many of them. And then just a little bit later down, he says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So, so he's not talking about some person in the future at the end of days who is going to be in this epic battle against Gabriel or Jesus and it's going to be the smackdown of the universe. What he's saying is that those who deny that Jesus is the Christ are anti-Christ. They are against. They do not have that knowledge of who he is. So that, that's the second place that we have to unpack as we kind of get into this passage. As we move to an understanding that God doesn't call us to live lives of shame. But God calls us to live lives of assurance and abiding in Him. So how does He do that? What is John saying to us in this as we look at this letter that he lets us know? He says this, look, first of all, you need to know that the Antichrist is those who deny Christ and that at one point they were with you, but now they're not with you. And the way that we know that they're the Antichrist is because they deny Christ and they are no longer with you. So those of you who stay within those are, that are believing, know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are not the Antichrist. So the first thing that we recognize is that God says that there is an assurance in our assembly. There is an assurance as we gather together with those who are with us. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean beyond a shadow of a doubt for us because John says they were with you and now they're not with you. They were here, but now they're not. It's a beautiful picture for us of what the idea of between the visible church and the invisible church is. That within the visible church, those of us who are here gathered together today and all around the world in multiple different locations and many different flavorings, that within that group there are those who are and those who aren't. But it's really not up to us to look because all we can see and judge because all we can see is the outside. We have to trust that God is working in each and every individual and that he's bound us together together. And that as we stay together and we live together and we know one another and we love one another, that it's in that moment that we have assurance of assembly. That it's because we desire to be with others who love Jesus and want to worship him, it reminds in our hearts that in fact, no, we are called by God as well. That's the reason why it's important for us to gather together. 
to be with one another. Whether it be on Sunday morning in a gathering or Bible studies or having dinner in each other's houses or serving the world together in some form or fashion. It's important for us to be with one another because in being with one another, we recognize that we are called and bound together by something larger than what we are. It's not just the fact that I like you guys. And honestly, I like most of you. I mean, all of you. It's the fact that Jesus binds us together. That's the first thing that we see that leads us to a shameless life, is that I don't have to hide myself, that I can be who I am in God, in Christ, with those he has joined me to. So that's the first thing that we see. Then John gives the third word that we need to unpack. And he says this, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have this knowledge. Now, when we talk about anointing, that can carry with it all sorts of things. And again, interestingly enough, John is the only one who uses this particular Greek word for anointing. So he means something very particular in it. What John is talking about here is not just the importance of the anointing, but it's the importance of who's doing the anointing. So notice that he says, but you have been anointed who? By the Holy One. By the Holy One. You've been given this. If we look at, at 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us an insight into this, which is nice. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, he says this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Now that's a little bit different word than anointing, and I'll, I'll give you the difference in it in just a second. Who has anointed us and who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now the word for anointing that, that, that Paul uses there is the anointing that we know about of putting on oil, like pouring oil, anointing it like that way, which is something that would be done for healing or for cleansing or for cleaning or to set apart. The word for anointing that, that John uses is this great word, and if you kind of look down, it, it has the idea of anointing, like a laying on, a pouring over, but then it also has this great idea of a smudge. This idea that it's not just a mere glance of an anointing, right? That it's not just sort of a brush over, but it, that it's a smudge. And when I think of a smudge, when I smudge something, I push it down. That it really, you can feel it. You can know it. For instance, when one of my kids has something on their face, I go, and I push. They hate that, by the way. It's that push of God. The Holy One pushes into us, smudging us with our anointing. And what is that anointing? Is it some special revelation? No. Is it something that, that is not for uh, only those who are special? No, because he says all of you have received this anointing later on. 
It's for everyone who God moves and puts into Christ, and that anointing is the promise and is the Holy Spirit. That we have the Holy Spirit, God, in fact, living in and among us, moving within our very being, wrestling with us, and calling us to remember who we are. He says, I have anointed you. The Holy One has anointed you and it has given you all knowledge. John sort of here is just writing a commentary, to be real honest with you. He's really writing a commentary on something that Jesus said that John heard. And it's good for us in this place of talking about anointing and what he's saying and the fact of what an antichrist is, the one that denies who Christ is, the one who doesn't recognize the Father. It's good for us to go back and hear what Jesus said. Because what John is doing is he's just telling us this is what Jesus said and this is how it plays out and what it brings to you. And so sit back and relax and hear the words of Jesus that John recorded for us in John chapter 14, although it wasn't chapter 14 back then, but that's how we've broken it up. It says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. And there where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now you do know Him, and you have seen Him. And Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works of themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live and you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. What John is saying here and reminding us of in this passage is that Jesus says, I am giving you my spirit as a helper to say some things to you so that when I come back, you will not be caught up off guard. You will not be ashamed of anything that you have done because I have taken care of it. He says that you will do my commandments not in order to not get caught up, but because the love that you have for me abides in you. And it causes you to have a desire to follow after me and do the things that I do. And by doing that, know that you are abiding in me completely. Completely. That's what he says there. He says, look, I'm writing to you these things not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. The second way that we walk into this is the assurance of the knowledge that we have. Too many times I have folks that come up to me and say, I just don't know if I'm following God. I just don't know if, if God loves me or is for me. I just don't know. If you didn't have that question, that would make me nervous. At any moment in our lives, at any times, when we have this place where we're, we're saying there's something missing, there, there's something that, that I don't quite get and I don't know that I can ever get, but it's missing, hear me, that is God working in your life to say, you know the truth. See, because it's those who don't know the truth that easily say there is nothing out there. There is no emptiness in my life. There is no place that I need to be fulfilled. That everything has worked out exactly the way that it needs to work out in the way that I want it. And I understand that sometimes when things go pear-shaped and get really screwy in our lives, the first place we want to turn is to the fact that there must not be anything out there. I get that. I walk in that place too often than I'd like to admit. But it's even in that calling, in that desperation of saying there must be something better that God is calling out and saying, you know the truth. There is something better. But you couldn't do that if you didn't know the truth. That's what John's saying. I'm not writing you because you don't know this, but because you do know it. You see, what was taking place here is that there were a group of people who had decided they wanted to be extra special. And what they had said is, you have to have special knowledge and special understanding of who God is. That it's not really all that clear. That you don't know the truth. And so until you learn what we know, then you can't actually be following God. Those were the people who had left. Those were the Antichrist. 
Those were the ones who were denying that Jesus, in fact, was Christ and that Jesus and God were one. We're not that clever today. We set it up really easy for us because we say, well, if you're not doing these particular activities, then you probably aren't saved. You don't know the real knowledge. Or we say, if you keep doing these activities, then you can't possibly be saved. And in fact, what we're doing is denying the mere humanity that we possess. The fact that God has made us and we are broken. That I desire to prove my worth by doing things to make people think I'm worthy. Or I can't keep from doing those things that I don't want anybody to ever know about. And we believe that because of that, God can't pursue us or see us or know us. There was a song that used to be saying in the 70s about Jesus coming back and the second coming. And in it, the song basically was saying... Um, That the Son of Man has come, but because you've not been living right, you've been left behind. It goes something like this. Two men climbing up a hill. One looks away and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's still time to change your mind. The Son has come and you've been left behind. Doesn't that inspire you to... Follow after Jesus. My sister Gretchen, she thought the word said, the sun has come and you better let me hide. <laughs> Listen, that's the way many of us live. We live our life in so much fear that God's going to come and we're going to be in the middle of doing something that is unacceptable to him. And that at that moment, we're going to lose it all. And we know ourselves so well that we recognize that no matter how much good I try to do, that it's going to be that one moment when the trumpet sounds and Jesus starts coming back on this horse, that I'm going to be in the middle of doing something I don't want Jesus to see. And now, a little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. John is reminding us here that the Spirit is calling out. Just as, just as Paul writes in Romans, that the Spirit gives us the ability to say, Abba, Father, and the Holy Spirit is testifying speaking truth to our spirits, this anointing that God has given us, saying you are in fact a child of God. You are in fact a child of God. You are now a child of God. That even if Christ comes back at this moment and you're thinking to yourself, would Lee just shut up? God's not going to slap you down because of that. Even if your mind is wandering to some ill thought, God's not going to slap you down because of that. If your motivation to not do those things that are unrighteous, 
is because you're afraid you're going to get caught, that's not going to change your heart. You're just going to find new ways to do it. But when we begin to believe what John has written here to us, that the Holy Spirit is the anointing that we receive that reminds us that we are children of God, then our hearts begin to sing out with joy and love to the Father and we walk in the way that He has called us. So that verse 29 that seems so daunting to us, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. We think, I can't do anything righteous, I'm not doing anything righteous. And even the righteous things that I do, I'm sure they're just the list that I'm ticking off because Lee keeps talking about it that way. No, we walk in a place of devotion and love because we are not shameless. Because the Father loves us and has come for us and has brought us in. And so if you are here today and you think you've got it together, no, you don't, but the Father loves you. And if you're here today and you think there's no way the Father can love you, stop believing the lie. The biggest lie that we could ever believe is that God doesn't love us. It's classic. He does. Can't get enough of you. And yes, guess what? Some of us are going to be prideful and we're going to think, well, because I'm a preacher and I do church and I do all this, then God loves me a little bit more. Nope. John does away with that. He says this anointing is for everyone. And some of us are going to stand here and go, yeah, yeah, Lee, but you don't know what I've done. <laughs> you don't know what I'm planning on doing later today. Let me tell you this. Don't do what you're planning on doing later today. <laughs> but let's not worry about the things that you've done. Because Jesus took care of that. And he also took care of the things that you might still do later today. And hear the Spirit testify to you. The anointing that you have. You are loved. Let me pray. Father, you are good. And all you